welcome to episode 18 of the Reenactors Ramble. Sorry to all of our listeners, it's been a little bit of a while. Andy and I have been quite busy, uh, preoccupied with, with various tasks, but we are back for another wonderful episode. Um, today we're going to do something which our listeners have been asked us to do for quite a while now. Uh, and we're going to help some of our beginners out and we're going to talk about uh, the US Infantry Enlisted Man's Impression within the ETO and we're going to put together a bit of a beginner's guide about uh, what kind of equipment you might need from your uniform to your weapon all the way from 1942 up to the end of the war in 1945 to the best of our ability. Uh, we're only going to focus on the ETO today. Um, Andy and I admittedly don't quite have the, the knowledge of the skills base in the Pacific Theatre of War just yet our operations, but uh, that's something that we'll look to discuss in future. But Andy, quite looking forward to this one. It's been a while since we spoke about the sort of US forces, really. Hi, Rich. You know what? It has been a while. Um, I think the longest we haven't actually spoken to each other, to be fair. I think we've both mm. been extremely busy. We've WhatsApp, WhatsApp each other uh, with our little group and a few with friends, but apart from that, no, it's, it's good to talk anyway. You're good. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously we'd over the last few weeks, we've uh, we've started a new lockdown. We're approaching the end, hopefully, of this one as well. So let's hope that this vaccine that everyone's talking about is uh, is potentially the sort of rebirth of uh, the reenacting season in 2021. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been quite difficult up in Liverpool. Uh, we had the major lockdown and uh, the COVID testing as well. And I just love the way the media and social media portray it. You know, it's all kind of... Um, thousands of people lining the streets waiting to get tested, etc. <laughs> Being forced, the army was yeah. up here the lot. It wasn't that bad. Scary, scary times. No. But COVID aside, any uh, you know, you mentioned we've not spoken too much over the last few weeks. Any any new kit purchases? Anything? Any new learnings? Any new books you've been reading or, or TV programs programs at all? Do you know what? Um, no, I've been absolutely <clears throat> horrific. You know what Shocking. it is. I. I've been doing work sitting in my studio and I've been listening to a couple of podcasts um, and, you know, people we follow and people who've been following us. So it's been in the background, but with me working from home, I've actually not been able to actually do what I want to do, which is really odd because you'd think you could. But because I've been on these kind of podcasts, uh, these teams meetings, you know, it's it's been draining to be fair. So family come back and that's all I want to do is spend time and that's that so how about you what have you been up to have you got any uh fair dues fair dues news? um not too much uh I had to do a bit of repainting on the jeep a bit of an incident with that um which was annoying but uh another another US officer's cap to the collection which is a, a nice one a bigger size it fits my massive head which is good uh, another do British cap no absolutely not <laughs> I, you know what I'm like with selling kit, don't do that. Um, another British forage cap, and I've got three battle dress on the way that I won in our auction, which was supposed to be here tonight, which they're not, so that's been... You know what, I'm chuffed for you, I really am. No, I'm made up for you, actually. You know, you're really dedicated to the cause, you really are a true... Just more for, more for you to share, Andy, when it comes back to event season. Oh, thank you. Definitely. It's good that we're the same size. <laughs> Absolutely. But anyway, aside from uh, from new kit, there I, yeah. uh, I I did watch Midway uh, last weekend. It's, uh, I went to see it at the cinemas, and it's it's on Amazon Prime. So watched Midway this weekend and, and thoroughly enjoyed that. And it, uh, it it sort of drove a little bit of a an interest in in the US side of things again, mm-hmm. and hence why we're here now discussing not necessarily the uh, uh, you know the naval operations that that went on, um, but the US forces nonetheless. So this episode is aimed at the beginner. Um, for all of you experts out there, there might be some things that you disagree with, or you might have further knowledge to this. But please bear with us. It is for the uh, you know not the, it's not necessarily for the seasoned reenactor, very much for the beginner there. And we're going to try and help out as best we can. And if we do get something wrong, <laughs> please forgive us. Um, but so Andy, we're going to start forty two really. So obviously we've got Pearl Harbor, December forty one, which is yeah. approaching uh, the anniversary of that. You know, we're approaching the eightieth anniversary of uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, so actually 80th, that's not right. It's the 79th, uh, cause we're not in 2021 just yet. But anyway, so we've got the, the, the U.S.'s first major involvement, I guess, not necessarily the ETO, I'm not sure whether the class Africa is the ETO or not. Um, but we're going to start with Operation Torch in, uh, in 1942. 
Um, And we're going to discuss, um, and this is about what sort of kit you could have that might be versatile across, um, I guess, from 42 to 44, 45. And we're going to talk about where it might be suitably appropriate for for any generic infantry regiment uh, within that. So, so yeah, we're in 1942, Operation Torch. Should we start with, you know, basic clothing, Andy? What what are these guys wearing? Well, you know, we start seeing this major involvement with the uh, US troops and what they're going to be wearing is, starting from the bottom, you've got your service boot, okay? Um, we're not seeing things like Cochrane's, okay, or the M43, of course, which comes later. We're seeing service boots with what we in the hobby call leggings, okay? And the the actual um, the term, term for the leggings and what, what they are, they're um, a protective for the top of the boot, um, and you're your wool trousers, your mustards that you're wearing. And that's kind of where you're starting with. Um, you know, they come with the, the eyelets and the whole rigmarole of trying to get them on for these guys. And you start wearing, working your way up. And what you're seeing is the wool shirts, the M43 jacket. Okay. The M41 jacket. M41 jacket. There you go. There's the first boo-boo. The M41 <laughs> jacket. Um, but, you know, we were discussing this before and, you were making kind of uh, the, the the obvious thing is well, what's the purpose of these leggings? You know these what what is it? You know what is the the big deal about them? And I think uh, for me, the the reverse style thing, you know, they they're an obvious thing. I think you got to think about what um, where they, they actually uh, form within society and why they come through. You see them in the kind of the, the trenches of World War One. You see them. Farm labourers wearing them throughout the states in Europe, etc. So they've been, there are actually a practical use to these things. Which is what? Keeping the crap out of your boots. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. The actual, yeah. um, okay, so the actual uh, name for the leggings is M38, if I'm not mistaken, canvas leggings, and the several eyelets up the, uh, up the side. And you've got to make sure that you word them correctly and not like a bit of a muppet. So that's where we are um, on the lower part. I think all the accessories and what, sorry, what you going to say? Uh, no, I was just saying, obviously, going back to leggings, I guess you mentioned okay. the Great War. I mean, they, they were generally a replacement, right, for the for the putty um, mm. in itself as well. I guess that's a major difference to, to World War One is that the, the awkward putties, which were which we used back then as well. So, um, yeah, a bit of a change. And they do come in different sizes. I guess, you know, let's try and think about our, or a beginner there, um, and, and what they might be buying. So they do come in sizes from one to four, one being the smallest, four being the largest. And I think pretty much everybody I know is a size two or a three. Um, yeah. Mostly a three, but if you've got small calves, it's probably a two. Um, I'd probably say these are one of the cheaper items for uh, a collector or a reenactor to purchase. Um, and what we're going to do throughout this is we're going to discuss each bit of equipment and, and where you might find that. So if we're going to start with a with the M38 leggings there, or otherwise known as the Gators, I would recommend an original purchase for these. I mean, I've probably yeah. got about three or four pairs and give a couple away to friends over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think I've probably paid between £10 and £25. You know um, what, if that, the, you can get them as low as 15 I know I've only paid about mm-hmm. less than a tenner. And I know times are changing and things are getting on a bit more scarce, but there is no excuse for buying reproduction. That is ridiculous. Really no, is. I mean, I mean, it depends on your attitude, and I think you know, as the years oh. go on, I think more and more people are going to be buying reproduction because of you know the scare, the, how, how scarce these things might become, and, and the damage to them. But I think one one thing I probably would say if you if you are getting reproduction ones, I mean, I've got no idea of a really good reproduction source for these because I've yet to see one. Um, but I think the benefit of them is that they're there to sort of get dirty and mucky, and they're probably one of the easier bits of kit to sort of that will quickly get worn down and look a little bit more real and original um and you mentioned the uh the m1937 wool trousers and shirt as well andy a little bit earlier um also known as the mustards out there they're another very very common piece um and what we're going to find is that these these wools were were available you know right until 1945 they were worn with a lot of uh, infantry units so you know within that there were you know a couple of million gis during world war ii so if you think about you know, each each of these guys probably might have worn five, six, seven, eight, maybe even ten pairs of uh, or sets of these nineteen thirty seven yeah. wool trousers and shirts. So you know, you, you're probably looking at maybe what ten million of these of these you know sets made. So they're very, very readily available. Um, 
few people in the States, there seems to be a load very good prices over there. And that's generally where I've got mine at a very cheap rate. And again, you get different um, different particular patterns, which we're not really going to go into on this occasion, but you get some with sort of gas flaps inside. And, um, you know, there is some some minor differences to them. The buttons are sometimes a dark green versus a tan. We're not going to go too much into that at the moment. But yeah, again, that's another recommendation, I would say, to try and find um, original. For, there, are, there are some reproductions out there. Again, you know, your usual sort of... Um, yeah, the uh, um, I think the ones that we been rangers always adopted was the um 37 pattern wool um and you're right you know they have different um panelings and gas flaps etc we blouse them over our leggings um the difference is that on the i think it's the right side um back there's um a small slit and later on it changes and i think it, it adopts a flap late late war um I'm sure someone might pick me up, but um, that's what I recall doing my mm-hmm. research all them years back. Because, you know, when I I got into this and I wanted to try and find the the Class A gear as well, you know, to wear in the evening and dress, well, dress up for the evening, people were talking about these trousers called mustards. Mustards, you got to get mustards. What the hell is mustard? You try and find it on the internet and you're finding little or nothing. You know, it's... Do you think, is, is that a bit of a reenactorism? Because you, you mentioned it's... It's not something I've heard recently, but probably heard that a lot from maybe 2005 to 2010. Yeah, I used to hear it a lot, but maybe not anymore. Maybe that's one of those sort of phrases that reenactors just sort of invented. The actual, or... the, I've got um, an inventory book um, of stuff that was used uh, pre, pre-D-Day, um, kind of quartermasters, and the actual um, log entry says, trousers, wool, surge, OD, light, shade, special. <laughs> 1937 and i just love the the kind of language you know and when you start seeing them in the certain sectors and you start seeing you know twenty five thousand pairs you think what the hell you know we're talking mass quantities here yeah yeah that's why they're quite easy to get hold of so we've got our wool shirts and, and wool trousers there so like we've said original there's plenty available unless you're a a huge size and you need to fasten your belt with a boomerang um well <laughs> that's something else that we haven't mentioned we'll have to come on to belts in a bit um, but yeah, they're readily available. There is there is a lot of good reproductions, so it is quite an easy thing. It's just a very basic wool shirt and trousers, so they're very easy for for reproductions to to, to find decent reproductions. Anyway, I think that's probably the, one of the the few items today that I would say there isn't a huge amount of difference between. In reality, it's quite difficult to mm. spot. I would say. Um, so you mentioned again, we've, we've going back. We've got the, the Type Two Thirty Nine pattern um, service boot as well, which is like a bit like a, bit like a lower version of a Corcoran boot. Um, yeah. Again, there's some re- reproductions out there, but there's not, I mean, I think I've, I've only known two people with an original pair of those boots, but I've also yet to see a really good, in the UK anyway, yeah. um, reproduction version of those boots. There are some that some certain suppliers make and manufacture, and I, I don't think they're of great quality. Um, but if anyone knows any great supplies of those, then please point us in that direction. Yeah, I've got um, I've got an, an original pair of um, rough out boots. You know, the kind of like service boots. I think uh, forty three dated mine. Um, the difference being they've got no toe cap on them. So we generally, if I'm not mistaken, call these the rough out boots. Uh, I remember wearing boots like it when I was a young kid. You know, or uh, mm-hmm. things like desert boots. We used to call them as kids. Mm-hmm. But I've got an original pair of those. I paid fifteen pounds for mine. Well, that's that's where the actual the name comes from, desert boot. Um, the military's usage in uh, in World War Two in, in Africa yeah. is, uh, is is what I was taught during my some of my fashion hair days. But but anyway, so we've, that's the boots, and we've got as you mentioned the M forty one jacket. Now, probably one of the the deeper discussion points for uh, for where to purchase this. I've I've got two originals. Um, they're I wouldn't say they're they're easy to come by. Um, Ironically, the the very expensive usually, but I've got both of mine for under a hundred quid. Um, but they are quite difficult, I think, to find as an original piece. And you don't see too many sort of floating about, really, do you? No, I don't, because the, although there was millions made, um, obviously a million were wrecked. Millions were wrecked, and we get further on, and we start seeing them being um, used by reenactors and so forth. Uh, I know of only one guy, and now I know you who've got who's got one in the group. Um, mm-hmm. I've never owned one, 
saying that I bought my first M41 jacket from a company up in uh, North Wales and I've worn it to death. It's frayed. It's it's older than the actual war lasted and I've worn it probably more uh, on more occasion than a GI during World War II and it's absolutely spot on now. It's got to a point where mm-hmm. it's been washed and frayed and sewn that many times, you know, to an untrained eye, you'd think it was original, you know. And there's, there's some terrible, terrible copies out there. Um, oh, yeah. It, you can generally, I think the lining's always a good a good telltale sign. The colour, you get a huge variety in colours from jackets that are very green to jackets that are almost white. Mm. And I always find it it's somewhere in the middle, you know. Um, it, they're not too green, they're not too rare. It's slight beigey sort of tone to yeah, it, yeah. but... I mean, but we've also got to remember that there were millions made and the two the two M41s I've got are both different shades. The buttons are different on them because they were all, you know, let's not forget the US is a, is a huge, huge country and the number of manufacturers within each particular state that went towards manufacturing these jackets would have varied hugely. Um, so, you know, the, the difference in zip and fabric color would have been ginormous. I think the key really is if you are representing a unit together with your reenactment group to try and, have a similar toned jacket. And I think, that, you know, that's why I, I don't use my original M41s, one, because I don't want to get them damaged. But secondly, I think it's more important that the group sort of fit together and uh, have a little bit of a degree of consistency. I'd probably recommend every group out there to try and purchase a, um, a sort of set of 41s from a specific supplier to make sure that you, you do have that sort of level of consistency there as well. That's a good bit of, bit of advice, actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, if a, if a group of uh, or a unit sign up together and they, they are trained together you know it's you should roughly get the kind of same consistency mm-hmm. i think you'd like to think definitely so. definitely so we've, we've covered pretty much head to toe there other than uh the headwear so we're talking about a combat situation here the brody helmet is, is is gone um we've moved into the m1 helmet yeah um and there's a little bit a few specifics here and we're, we're going to get a little bit more granular on this so we're talking about Fixed bail, front seam, M1 helmet. You know what, Richie? I think people need to realise that there are literally encyclopedias, there are books written about these things. Mm. So trying to cover them just briefly is scratching the surface because you've got to think about the size. That Some of them are, what's the word, they're kind of raised slightly higher than others, um, kind of punched, I guess, by the machine. You've got, uh, like you say, the, fir- the front seam, for those who don't know what that is, around the lip of the helmet, there is a band of metal and where it joins and finishes, it's at the front of the helmet. Generally, if you are doing early war, you need one of these. If you're not, um, if you haven't got one of these, another reenactor, someone who's a little bit learned in this situation will pick you up and they will toss you out. Um, you've got to make sure that that front seam is there and of course the uh the fixed bail the bail is the the loop if i'm not mistaken was it a d-shape on the early helmets i think it was a d-shape yeah and it's obviously where the uh where the strap fits as well um onto the helmet there and obviously that's why it changed to a a swivel bail to allow some uh, some greater movement with that that run throughout the war as well realize that it's cork within the helmet as well you know on the actual texture Mm. Mm-hmm. It's um, a cork in the paint, and that and that's little... in, that's important to have that that sort of brown cork coloured because mm. um, you do see a lot of post-war Belgian and Dutch, I think it might be um, Finnish uh, helmet liners um, that are post-war, and you can sort of get away with it at a glance, but you know certainly don't get one of these nasty Chinese dark green mm. liners. You know if you can't find an original Firestone liner, whoever it is. That's because, you know, the, the liners can cost as much as the shells these days. Mm, an original yeah. one, you know, at the worst, a post-war Belgian would do it probably. Um, but yeah, please don't go to the, the, the Chinese reproduction equivalent of a dark green yeah. type thing in there because it's just it's just pretty nasty. You know, as well. um, it's, it's interesting when you think about the helmet is. A lot of people don't realise that it's actually, like you say, it's a shell. that We can take the shell out. So for those who don't know... The canvas strap that you can tie around the back of the helmet, the nape, that actually keeps the liner inside the helmet, as well as the leather band. Now, what you can do is you can take that leather band off 
and just wear the shell, maybe on parade and so forth. And that's the difference, you know, combat look or the parade look. And people don't realise this. I mean, the helmets, it's a fascinating story. And there's a few people out there mm. who just literally make a living reconditioning these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's that's North Africa in a, in a very quick nutshell, Operation Torch 1942. Now that basic core impression doesn't really evolve too much. I mean, if we move into, mm. I guess, the next major operations, which uh, I guess you could class as invasions of Sicily and Italy in Operation Husky, uh, July 1943, moving on to the uh, mainland invasion of Italy uh, on the 3rd of September 1943, we're generally seeing the Wolves again and the M41s again. Um, we are seeing the introduction at this point of the, the rough-out boot, the Type 3 service combat boot. We've still got the leggings in there. We've still got the the M1 helmet, you know, probably looking towards a swivel bale at this point, but still front seam. But there's no real other marketable differences there, Andy, would you say? No, we start seeing for uh, Overlord, the introduction of the HPT, um, bottom and top. Uh, when I first, again, started the hobby and made a few phone calls to a few shops online to try and get some information because I just didn't understand it. I didn't get why... I would want to wear these when everyone's talking about wools. You know, I, I was I found out early on that the HPT, uh, say trousers and the jacket, certainly the jackets. If you buy a, a, if you're a medium, you need to get extra large because that's what it was for. It was to go over the clothes. Uh, the Rangers wore them on Point de Hoc, um, famously. Uh, you don't see them being worn on. Omaha with, say, for instance, Saving Private Ryan, which, you know, in all fairness, apart from the odd black boot, they kind of got it right in certain aspects. But I think um, if you go back to kind of uh, the Mediterranean, moving up towards Overlord, we've got things like pistol belts, M36 pistol belts and M36 suspenders that you'd wear with that, with a musée bag, you know, and the general infantry chap, he'd be wearing the, uh, the M28 haversack. Or the, uh, and that would be, uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing, the Havsack, don't you think? The Doughboy. I never really understood when I first got it well, how the hell it was all going to work. Mm. But, you know, so I guess at this point, we're going back to, I guess, to that first infantry impression in um, in, in, in Operation well, Torch in 42 onwards. We're, we're talking about the webinar, there. It's a good point. So we've you've, you've got two different options really there if you're putting together um, an impression. So we think about that, that beginner again, what are they purchasing? If you're going to have your webbing, now what is webbing for a, for a start? Webbing is essentially combat equipment. It's uh, it's where you keep your ammunition, where you might store a bayonet, where your your water bottle slash your canteen is, um, where you might keep a compass, where you might keep some wire cutters. So yeah, generally there's a few basic things, right? If for the majority of people, if we're talking about an infantry enlisted man, you're going to be you're going to be using a rifle, which is probably the M1 Garand. Um, obviously the Springfield is very, very early war, but we are seeing the M1 Garand primarily um, from 42 onwards in the ETO. Um, so as you mentioned there, we've got the, we've got, potentially got the Garand belt there. Um, if you, if you're having a rifle, um, you've got, so you mentioned, what else did you mention there, Andy, the, the 28 Doughboy? The um, M28 uh, Haversack or the Doughboy as it was known yes. as well. Um, it's, it's a small rucksack. You can actually add. A rubbish rucksack, might I add. Yeah, it makes the idea is that you're supposed to roll everything around, say a um, a blanket or a shelter half, possibly uh, what do you call it, um, a poncho. Or it's like the, the equivalent. Coat. It's like the the equivalent of designing a car where you've got to get in the sunroof. Yeah, it, it it's odd, and I have used them in a practical sense where I've actually gone away for the full weekend, and I've actually had to rely on this doughboy. This that's have terrible. a sack to throw everything in. And, you know, you can't, you you can't just reach in and get something out, can you? Like, you know, it's not no. like a mazette bag or a no. British small pack. I mean, you can look at the small pack or the large pack that the British use in World War One and compare it to the Doughboy. And it's like, how how 20 years later yeah. have the United States of America not figured out a better version of the Doughboy? <laughs> you know, no, and I, 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 the thing I don't understand is why, you know, so I guess for anyone listening again, the beginner wise, the door buys for the uh, the enlisted man, and when you know if you're an officer or in the uh, the airborne, yeah. you will have a mazette bag, which is a much more easily accessible thing, which is based on the British small pack design. I just don't understand why that wasn't issued to all um, enlisted men. Really don't. Yeah, it's an odd one. Somebody, 
somebody might have an answer out there, but I'm, you know, I'm completely unaware of, of why that is. But yeah, you've got your, so you've got your Garand belt there. You've got your canteen pouch on there. So again, a canteen is a water bottle for anybody that doesn't know that. It comes with a little um, can that you might put your, your drink in there as well, like a hot drink, or you might make some stew in there or something like that. Um, what else have we got there, Andy? We've well, got... Um, the M23 Garand belt, of course, it, it, whatever you're wearing or what you're actually going to carry is dependent on the rifle or the weapon you're carrying. So if you've got the M1 Garand, you're going to use the M23 Garand belt, canvas belt, with all the pouches for the uh, M blocks. If you've got, uh, if you issued an M1A1, you'd use, which is the uh, Thompson submachine gun, you'd have the pistol belt, uh, the M36 pistol belt, with this, again, which would clip the haversack too. Uh, you've got your dismounted uh, canteen or your pouch, for, um, you, your holder for your canteen. Um, what else have we got? Well, all kinds of little tools you can You've got the on. shovel. The shovel's ah, a good one, right? Because you obviously you start with the M1910 uh, T-handle shovel, which is, I guess, used, used early on at Torch and uh, within uh, Operation Husky as well, uh, probably till what... Again, might be wrong here, but probably up until sort of late '43, yeah. really, that was used until we we moved on to the M1943 folding shovel. Yeah, which, yeah. We, um, we start seeing also people with pickmatics as well and axes. Mm. I remember these little stories at an event. Oh, that's a great! Why have you got an axe? Well, I'm a medic. You know, oh, why? What do you think? You know, you you have these little stories and these little snippets, but I think. I mean, I I used to carry a pitmatic in my um, doughboy. Uh, I've seen guys with not only a pitmatic, which is a small pick. I've seen people with a shovel up the back as well and an axe on the other side. You think mm-hmm. yeah, you really, you know, go and go all out here with all these entrenching tools? Mm, definitely. So, so that's that's our uh, weapons. I mean, obviously, we we, we haven't talked about officers. That might are NTOs that might have a, a Thompson in there as well. So the the, the obvious, well, not the obvious, because this is aimed at beginners. But um, early early war, we're looking at the the 1928 version of the Thompson submachine gun, moving into the M1A1 Thompson, um, probably sort of late 42, 43 mm. um, onwards as well for that. Um, and that's primary. I mean, obviously we've got BARs, but let's let's keep this very versatile for the for the beginner here. Um, the best thing that you can really get is a is a Garand belt, right? You know, yeah. that's the easiest one to get. Rifle um, Yeah, for your Garand. We see too many Thompsons and carbines about when, you know, primarily the weapon of choice for the infantryman would have been the M1 Garand. Um, however you want to say that, it's said differently all over the world. Garand. Um, Garand. But, Grand. but that's uh, that's generally the most common weapon uh, that was used there. So so we move into into 1944, which we, we started touching on there, Andy. So hmm. you talked about the HBTs, um, coming in. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the purpose of the HBTs and you mentioned about them going over walls? Well, that, that was the one of the first things I actually found out. Again, going on to a few websites um, back in the early days, I would be looking at the gear for a ranger because I started out in Airborne and that's done. You know, it's so simple to find the, the information. But with an infantryman, I was finding walls and wool shirts, M41s. And then the... Uh, the chair of the Normandy 44, the Enactment Association, he said, oh, no, you need your HPTs. And when I called up a certain shop in North Wales, <laughs> you'll know who they are, they said to me, look, you know, you've got to get the bigger size. And I went, why? And went, it goes over your uniform. It goes over the actual walls. And I never got this. So, of course, I bought this uniform and it drowned me. And I went to, uh, I think, my first season, looking like, a, you know, I was wearing dad's clothes. It was ridiculous. Um, but that's what I guess the, the, the clothes were about. You know, that you wore them over the wool uniform. Um, but that's what I understand it to be. You know, I'm sure other, other chaps and lasses out there will tell us that something different. Yeah, but, well, I guess, her, I mean, HBT stands for Herringbone Twill for, for anybody out there that's wondering again as the, as the beginner in there. And I guess they were... Designed really, I guess, with a bit more of a, a practical nature in mind um, to, to replace some of the sort of more cotton wool uniforms that we've, we've already mentioned there. And there is different mm. patterns. Again, you get you get first pattern, um, oh, wow. which which actually I think I think that came around as 
as early as 1941, um, to be honest as well. And then you got the two pieces in 42 and it, it, it changed quite a bit. Um, and there's various differences, like you had buttons on the collar for, for hoods and, and some came gas with flaps. a gas flap in, in 43. I think the gas flaps came in um, and the same in the fly. And that was the general the idea that you know, they are a bit of a sage green colour. Um, the the idea, like, big, wait, they've got gussets on the pockets as well, you know, to give yeah. more kind of more... Uh, power let's yeah. just say and the, the common thing that you read a lot was that they were designed to go over the hbts to to, to aid in in um in gas attacks for the invasion so even the cuff details everything has has buttons on to tie them tighter there's a gas, gas flaps there the idea be being generally that a lot i've been sort of told in the past is, is to sort of help with with gas attacks on um on, on d-day as well which obviously never materialized but and these were used right into the korean war and whatnot but um Quite commonly, you, you can use them um, in, I guess, forty-four onwards impressions in there as well. But mainly yeah. the wolves, right? We should we should stick with it. if you're going to be, do a general infantry impression uh, throughout World War Two, you probably want to be looking at wolves. Yeah, I um, when I first got my kit, I think mine was M42 HBT uh, OD Shade Seven. I think that's what I remember the spec was. You know, mm. and I've watched them that many times now, but. Um, they didn't have their kind of, uh, they were just a flat pocket, the ones I had or have. They haven't got that kind of seam up the front. Mm-hmm. It's similar to on the, the cargo trousers, the, the, the yeah. bottoms. And footwear-wise in, in 44, um, we're seeing a bit of a mix here from the, the Type 3 service combat boot, which is the rough out. We're seeing the, the Type 2 39 pattern brown service boot still used. And we're also seeing the introduction um, of the corker and jump boot as well, uh, which is obviously an airborne forces boot. Um, but we are seeing this used by the likes of the Rangers on, on D-Day. Um, we are seeing this being adopted by a couple of infantry divisions here or there as well. But again, if we're looking at a versatile infantry impression, uh, I probably wouldn't be picking uh, a pair of jump boots for for that car impression. No, we um when we we've worn the the Cochrans and uh, people have often pulled us up. Is that why we're meant the airborne gear? Uh, the story I've heard uh, from someone was they were planning on doing some airborne training, and that's why they were issued them. When it came to D Day, um, we were talking with a chap, or some of our guys were talking with Len Lamel famous US second ranger of Point de Hoc. And he'd said to a few of our guys in the group many years back in Normandy, take your leggings off. We didn't wear them on Point de Hoc. D Company, mm. I think is what he was a part of. And that's why famously we've never worn leggings because we've always portrayed the men of Point de Hoc. So, you know, you see these quite famous little oil paintings and whatnot of these guys going up Point de Hoc and they've all got leggings on, you know, and we've got it kind of from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak, that, you know, don't put them on. We never wore them on that day. And, you know, mm-hmm. you see them on Private Ryan, you see them on the beaches, but that's that's our story. That's our thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. I mean, HBTs, again, I know we, we talked about Italy and Wolves, mm. but you, you do see uh, from early 43... HPTs being used. Um, you, you even see first pattern HPTs being used on on, on scene on, on VE day as well. Um, so you can use them, you know, from mid nineteen forty three onwards. Um, but you know, D Day, you are seeing a lot. I mean, fourth division troops. I'm looking at a picture right now of fourth division troops wearing uh, HBT jackets um, over an M forty one jacket. Um, so they were used a lot on on D Day um, by various infantry regiments as well as war. So um, I guess for me, if you, if you are starting an infantry impression, if you've got a set of HPTs and you've got a set of wolves, you, you're pretty much covered for, you know, 42 to 45 in reality. Um, you can't really go wrong with that, I wouldn't say. I think when we're, we're buying this kit and you know the impression you're going to work with, you know, the units, and you start obviously looking at a visual reference and get the research books and you kind of get to know about the, the titles of these things. There are books out there, and I've got one on my shelf called the uh, the Government Issue Collector's Guide. It's by um, a chap called Henry Paul. I'm going to get his surname wrong. It's like uh, N. James or E. James. And this book is has been literally, you know, not to be blasphemous, but the Bible, as far as I'm concerned with my buying, certainly when I want to buy things off the internet. 
Um, it's just a great research, uh, research, research and resource book. As long as you know what them M's, you know, the M28s, the M43s, you get that right and you're kind of halfway there with your collecting, you know. I think you can also add things to these, your collection, you know, if you're doing a D-Day impression, it's an old brainer to go and get yourself a 1926 life preserver belt, you know, about 80, 120 quid, um, if you can pick one up. It just And the rest these days. Is it? Is that what they are now? Oh, showing your age, showing your age, Andy. Yeah, I, I, I think minimum of one thirty, one forty these days for a good, wow. good condition one again. Um, I've got two box ones. Boxed. Mm, God, we'll we'll keep all of them for a bit longer because the uh, the value right. is only rising. Um, really quickly, I just remembered we didn't we didn't really speak about where to source um, the actual helmet shell from the M1 helmet shell. Uh, do you know what? They're not readily a bit. You see some on eBay at very ridiculous prices, but to be honest, I, I, I mean, try and get an original again, but I, I wouldn't say there's any great particular source for for helmets. I think we've just been involved with in the hobby for so long and knowing a lot of people that helmets have been passed around sort of friendship groups or reenactment groups for quite a long time. But for the beginner out there, it's probably that's probably one of your toughest parts to get. They used to be very cheap, but now you can't really buy an original shelf for probably less than... I don't know, 120 quid, 130 quid these days, I wouldn't have thought. You know no. what, Rich? I used to, uh, we don't go into names of um, websites, but there was always one website that I remember, and I've never looked at it for many years. It might not even exist. They were called Top Pots. I remember that mm. he was quite a, a formidable uh, person in the arena, renovating old M1 helmets. And that's where I got my information. And I think I got my helmet from him or them, mm. all them years ago. I've got about four or five now. I've got a thing for these helmets, so I've got them around my house. You know, I've them in the front window, I've got them on a shelf in the back room. I don't know, it's, for me it was the icon- iconic thing, you know, World War Two. this yeah, helmet. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we've moved from D-Day there, uh, we're moving into uh, to Market Garden and beyond into the Ardennes as well. So big change coming now, um, probably the biggest change uniform-wise of the war, we move into the world of the uh, the, the M43 jacket and trousers. Yeah, definitely. M43s and buckle boots, they're, they're the kind of two main or three main items of change that you're going to start to see. And they're the ones that if you're trying to do an impression and you get it wrong, yeah, someone's definitely going to pick you up on it. So the M43 jacket. Yeah, I like the M43. I love it. I, uh, big I difference is the is is the, is the two large breast pockets and oh, the skirt great. pocket as well. With the with the sort of the biggest biggest differences there, a um, bit more of a looser fit, really. I think than the uh, the M forty one. I would say as well. It is. Um, it's more you versatile. You've got obviously, like you say, the pockets, so you can shove more stuff in it. You've got the drawstring around the uh, the middle. Mm. You've got the detachable hood. Not forgetting the hood. And the liner as well. You can put a pile liner inside this thing. Uh, it's a great jacket. You know, it, we see it right all the way through to Korea. There are some very slight changes. I've got a transitional one from uh, a World War II, as we would call it, to a, a Korean War. And there's only one slight change to it. Because, again, there are websites and books solely based on this jacket and about the history of it and the in-depth knowledge about the suppliers the the numbers the codes associated with it um and i think it was the thread on the uh, the button that was the giveaway on mine so you know right. and the color of the buttons uh that was the the, the only difference okay um, that's yeah. interesting well i think what's interesting about the um the 43 jack i mean the the, the giveaways and the name that it was developed in mm. uh, in 1943 and it was actually tested initially um in italy by some GIs, um, but it, there were uh, from, from my research it, there were shipping delays after D Day, which which sort of kept the uniform from being having widespread use really until late nineteen forty four, oh. which is why you generally see it at Market Garden. Um, so the first people that were generally issued it were the paratroopers. Um, Market Garden, obviously, being a, a primarily um, paratrooper yeah. based operation airborne based operation uh, that's why you generally don't see it on the infantry until very very late 44 um or sometimes even early 45 as well um 
But the, the paratroopers were generally the ones to, to modify the uniform and they would generally um, sometimes add their own cargo pockets. Um, some of them obviously kept their old uh, Corcoran boots instead of the new M43 buckle boots because obviously there were um, buckles on those boots and they could potentially snag on parachutes, which was a bit of a fear for paratroopers back then as well. So that's why you do see a bit of a mix sometimes of buckle boots and Corcoran's being worn in, in 44. But obviously we're talking about the infantryman here. So the, you know, the general infantryman would be wearing the uh, the double buckle boot, as it's known from uh, from sort of September forty four onwards. There as well, I know. And um, there was the later on the French adopted the same kind of boot. It looks like a buckle boot, and the only slight difference is actually the sole. Um, it's mm. actually not as smooth. So you do see some reenactors out there wearing these French buckle boots, and I'm I've got a pair of, um, that I use in everyday life I think they're fantastic I bought mine from one piece about 15 years ago for two quid and now they're worth about 40 odd quid it's ridiculous absolute bargain but I mean only the real I mean you're still wearing the wool shirt here uh, for the infantry Ah, very much you're not really really seeing the HBTs because the you know the HBTs Mm -hmm. like we mentioned are designed to go over things so that wool shirt is still there um, we are beginning to see the five button jumper um, coming in a little bit here we're seeing that very much into the winter of 44 um, and we're very much in terms of helmets, you know, we're still mm. front seam. You might see, um, you might see the occasional rear seam, but, uh, you know, primarily front seam still. And we're very much into the world of the swivel bill here. Um, not really seeing any fixed bills there as such should be very much a, a swivel yeah. bill there as well. Uh, but yeah. In the, there's a film called Battleground. I think it was made in 44, 45, no, 46, I think it was. Um, and there's a few scenes in there where you see the wall jumper. You know, and I remember obviously coming across this film many years ago. One of the first, thing, first things I went out and bought, because I saw it in a, I think it was a charity shop or something, um, was this wool jumper, you know, and I was like, well, it's pretty cool. I'll have that. But um, I don't know. We're still seeing the horrible uh, Haversack, the M28. Mm. Still seeing that being used. This time it's bulked out with blankets and all kinds. Um, famously, um, there's a few photographs of rangers um, tooling up, so to speak, and they've got uh, mm-hmm. the pouches and bags and literally GP ammo bags hanging off them. Um, in the the um, oh, what was it? The point? Well, not point. Oh, what's the word? Hill. <laughs> uh, yeah, up in the uh, the Ardennes, uh, Hogan. So we, you know, we start to see the uniform changing. And I think if you are going to start collecting the uniforms, again, you know, think about the arena and what's happening in the uh, time frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're not really seeing uh, too much difference from, from 44 onwards. It's it's very much M43s. You do see M41 still yeah. occasionally being used by, by some GIs into, into 45 as well. Um, we're obviously seeing great courts at this point as well in, in combat infantry going into the Ardennes, like you mentioned, into the Battle of the Bulge. And at this point, you are seeing a bit of a mix as well. You know, people are struggling to get hold of equipment. They're struggling to get hold of ammunition, especially in the Battle of the Bulls. These people are surrounded. You're seeing a whole mix here of different boots. We're seeing Type 2, we're seeing Type 3, we're seeing Corcoran boots. We're seeing whatever these guys can get the hold, uh, get the hands on. Um, think about this time at the Battle of the Bulge in particular. They're surrounded, they're cut off in, in large parts and large numbers. So you are seeing a huge mix of equipment here. Um, and very much what people could get their hands on. So, you know, that's a little bit more lenient, I guess I would say, when you're getting to, to this stage of the war as well. And webbing has to, we have to say, has very much stayed the same, um, with the exception of the, the changing of the shovel that we mentioned earlier. The only difference is potentially the colour. Um, the, the OD shade is changing. You get into late war, into sort of uh, early 45, and we are going to a slightly darker shade of OD in there as well but primarily everything else is pretty much the same you've got transitional shades in there as well um and you want this sort of nice tan color of, of od for your webbing until probably um very very late 44 early 45 as Definitely. well there i think uh, a lot of people including myself and i know a few other guys you know we do make the mistake and we buy this green this green kind of team we've all done it yeah you know and you don't realize it I've, you know go out and buy a, a carlisle pouch and you go out and you buy this and you come back and it's like oh what the hell's that and you, you know it's it, it's what it is it says the number it's got the date it's 42 dates or whatever and it, it's pretty horrible but you know we, we live and learn 
we do we do indeed so I guess a bit of a a whistle stop to with there of um of those uniforms I guess from from 42 to 45 so I mean I guess if we were to wrap that up a little bit yeah you can't go wrong with a set of wolves set of wolves and then 41 will pretty much do you from 1942 to 1945 in certain arenas um Mm-hmm. original if possible very easy to get hold of but with wools probably one of the easier things that you can get reproduction uh, items of webbing wise we haven't really touched on there um we use ori- original webbing is very very easy to get hold of and i would yeah. probably say again that i've yet to see a very good reproduction set of us webbing out there that doesn't look you know high vis and look like it's bleached in a very strange orange yeah. yellow sort of color there so i would de- definitely recommend original webbing there where possible as well m1 helmets we, we've talked over a little bit we haven't talked about um hvt or jeep caps there either have we so obviously you've got this wool wool sort of peaked beanie um from yeah. sort of 41 41 onwards and, and being replaced by the hvt cap in 44 onwards but obviously still used very much in the winter of 44 and, and 45 due to the fact that it's a slightly warmer um more versatile cap which can or has beanie, which can sit sort of underneath your your helmet liner. Yeah, um, you know, a jeep cap is a fantastic thing. We call them jeep caps. I mean, is that the mm. the official term? I know they're M forty one beanies Pro- or something. Yeah, pro- you know? probably another reenactorism, isn't it? I would think. Yeah, uh, yeah I like mine. Um, I think um, going back to your uh, wool impression there, I think it's very important that everyone gets one simply because you can turn it from the class A to the class B to the infantry. It's all there. Mm-hmm. It's a staple. Easy, easy peasy. And obviously the, the the next matter is just insignia there. So you're obviously one on the, on the left shoulder, your particular unit that you're portraying there mm-hmm. as well. So obviously try and make sure that the unit you're impersonating and the time frame, and the equipment all matches up together because otherwise you're going to get um, picked apart a little bit there. And the other thing is obviously any rank insignia that you might have on there. So you do have a slight difference between summer rank and winter rank in there as well. So the summer will be a bit of a blue and a silver color and the winter will be more of a sort of khaki and dark Mm -hmm. sort of black color in there as well. So again, depending on what time of year that you're looking at, try to make sure that your insignia matches. If you're doing a winter impression, you don't want summer rank on there. You want winter rank on there as well. So those little details will make all the difference um, when it comes to putting together your your reenactment impression as well. But is there anything else, Andy, that you think uh, our beginners uh, could do with understanding or well, being educated upon for for the US infantry enlisted man in in within the ETO? Yeah, you know, going back to that rank and patch, uh, you can pick the originals up uh, for buttons unless it's kind of a specialist unit, and you might pay obviously a premium like a ranger's patch or even 101st airborne something like that but certainly pick your um your rank up for original um get the originals it's why would you why would you get you wouldn't go any difference would you you definitely gotta get the original it's it's convenient isn't i think the final bit of advice for me would probably be as you just alluded to to try and not put convenience above a long-term quality impression it's very easy to go to one of the uh, the reenacting supermarkets that are out there in the world, mm. you know, you you can, you can order from a, a what price glory or a soldier of fortune or yeah. whoever that might be in Epic Militaria. Um, and, and this, I'm, I'm not criticizing any of those supplies in, 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 in any way, but what I'm, I guess I'm getting at here is that I can order from what price glory. They've got a, a factory out in Dubai and they can send something to me within two days. It's great. It's very convenient. Uh, but is it always the right thing for my impression? Potentially not. So I think, you know, trying not to put convenience and the the passion and the, you know, the impatience of trying to get something together as quickly as, as, as you can. I think all reenactors can relate to that and take your time, wait for the right bit of kit at the right price, which suits you and don't rush into it because we all know the whole, you know, buy cheap, buy twice sort of thing. So just take your time, get the right kit and, and it will it will last you ultimately a lot, lot longer. Um, I don't know about you, but I've still got a few horror buys in my wardrobe um, from times when I've been too impatient or... Yeah, rush those purchases a little bit. Yeah, I've done that. Um, you know what? I've I've bought things from the places you've just mentioned, and I've not had a bad deal from them. But um, I have had some quite quite horrible things I've purchased. You know, wrongly that it's been labelled wrong, and I've just jumped into it because it was twenty quid. You know, but we live and learn. You live and learn. Uh, live and learn, right? 
So, just to finish up, Andy, we've had a couple of Q and A's as well, which we're quite oh, good yeah. to finish each each episode on. So, um, one of our first questions, I'm just going to actually get up who uh, sent these questions as well. But one of the, the first questions that we've had from uh, who's actually asked a previous question: What makes a good reenactment photograph? Wow. What do you think? Do you know what? That's from uh, that. That's from Carlil Photography. I think a lot of people um, take the picture and then try and manipulate it in Photoshop or any or Lightroom or whatever it is they're using. Nice sepia tone. Sepia tones, and for me, that never works. I used to do it years ago with mine, and uh, having someone like yourself, a professional photographer within the group, who takes fantastic pictures without using sepia tones or even that high definition. I think it's just action and relaxed. No, I think people try and make it look a bit too 40. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it's just a great picture. You know, the uniforms are correct. The hair is correct. And the guys just looked, look great around each other. You know, they're just comfortable. Yeah. I think that's, that's, I think that's what I would say. I would think having the, uh, having the right subject matter for a start is, is, is absolutely vital without that. And that's not just the impression. It's the background. You know, if you're going to go and take a picture in your garden with your mum's washing, oh, here we go. I'm going ranting. I can feel it. <laughs> if you're in the garden <laughs> next to your mum's washing and there's a rabbit hutch in the background, you know, um, and your neighbor's knickers are flying up on the washing line next door, you know, it's obviously not going to look very authentic. Whereas if you're in the woods and you've got some dirt on your face and you've got some really good kit, that's going to be great. And then beyond that, I think you've got to get some atmosphere, right? You've got to get some realistic sort of feeling in there. You've got to get some emotion, try and you know, show the temperature, show the light, you know, I think in, in those ways for me to really bring it to life and, and, and make it into something a little bit more. Um, but we've got another question here. Um, and this is from uh, Vintage Secret Inc. Uh, and congratulations to to Hannah and Corey on their recent marriage as well. Um, really, really great to see. Nice. But anyway, we'll, we'll dive into that. Um, how has reenacting impacted your life? Wow. Um, more than you think. Sounds ominous. Do you know what? Um, I've always wanted to get into this for many years. And when I did make that plunge, like many other people, I wish I'd done it sooner. I've now got to an age where I can't be that guy running around the field anymore. And I wish I could, you know, uh, not because I'm unfit or anything. It's just because of the type of impression, I guess, my age. It just makes sense, you know, that I take a bit of a back step. But I wish I'd just got into it. And how has it impacted? You know, I've met some fantastic people and I've had some amazing experiences. Let's face it, not everyone can say they've, you know, gone inside a tank, you know, fired it off, done a battle scene. You know, the experiences that we've had, you know, it's... and And the book that you created shows those experiences and my, my kids are going to have that memory. Wow, look what dad did 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Hey kids, this is your granddad 70 years ago. This is what he used to do. You know what I mean? Fantastic. Mm-hmm. What about you? What about you? Uh, interesting one. It's quite a profound question, I thought, and it got me thinking a lot. Um, and besides the obvious things that you've just mentioned and allowing you to experience some incredible things and you know, I'm thinking about being on the flight line and being inside aircraft like Spitfires and Lancasters, which is a, as a child, is just an absolute dream come true. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, driving in tanks and things like that, which which are the, I think, the the obvious, um, I guess, uh, outward facing things, which everybody could probably relate to. But if I want to get a little bit deeper than that, um, it, it very much changed my sort of lifestyle and spending habits i mean we know we know that it sounds makes you spend more money but yeah. you know it, it makes you spend on investment pieces it sounds daft but the more i've got into this hobby the less i sort of go out spending money on things like drinking pubs and and things like that and you know the more i spend money on equipment and things that are going to last me for a long time and, and therefore investments but it's also sort of forced me to be not forced but encourage me to be friends with people and i've developed you know, incredibly deep friendships with people that, you know, in in any ordinary walk of life, I would have never met. And people look at your friendship groups. Um, You know, a great example, um, a few, uh, in October, I was at a very small event 
and there was myself there was um a a chap who was uh, in his early 50s another chap who was in his late 50s and there was a lady who i'm not sure of her exact age but quite a strange mix on paper bit of a cocktail of people right but great friendship group we talk every single day and we get on like a house on fire and in in any walk of life you know this one of these people was from ireland somebody else was from jersey somebody else was from scotland and i'm from england it sounds like a joke doesn't it <laughs> um about to but you know any other walk of life wouldn't put you together yeah and i think it's just amazing that reenacting can bring these people together and it can it can actually bring you closer to people that are on either side of the world and i don't know i don't know about you but when I'm a Saturday night and I've you know had a few too many cans or whiskeys and I'm sat watching a war film and I think of the jeep in the garage and I think of and I walk into my study and see all my weapons on the wall, my books, it just brings a warm fuzzy feeling to me. So um, to answer your question, Hannah, I've got a warm fuzzy feeling because of rain. I think in my <laughs> life, I think that as a summary, as a summary, that's a good answer. So, good answer. Last last two questions, Andy. Um, and this question is, do you think women are taken as seriously as men in the hobby? My phone has just died, so I can't remember the name, but I think it's Airborne Ellie that asked this question. Um, do you think women are taken as seriously as men within the hobby? Yes, I do, actually. Um, I think, obviously, there's an equal proportion and room for our female counterparts. No, it, it's... It's there. It's a given. Women played a massive part in World War Two, so why wouldn't they be represented within the reenactment circle? Yeah, definitely, wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know what? There's some fantastic impressions out there as well. Mm-hmm. I would agree. In the most part, I think uh, I think they are taken seriously. I think uh, there, there's always going to be an element of, um, of of men in the hobby who don't take them seriously, who maybe see them as, as um, you know, they see them in a, in a particularly um, negative way or they, they view them as, um, you know, a bit more of a materialistic property and something that they shouldn't do, you know, um, instead of just appreciating them as people that are involved in the hobby and want to educate. As we discussed with with both Stephanie and, and Amy in previous episodes, I do think they are taken seriously. I think it, it doesn't help sometimes when you do see the whole, um, you know, type thing on a Jeep. I think, you know, that, that, that sometimes can get confused with those that are really diehard rain actors who are really invested in their impressions. And I think there's the there's a, a judgment wrongly from a lot of rain actors into women that they they don't know and that they're airheads and you know they're just putting on some lipstick and a random uniform there. So um I think they are taken seriously. I think there's we've still got a long way to go to get people to really respect them as rain actors and not just as women in the hobby who are, you know, just joining yeah. because their boyfriends are in the hobby or whatnot. Um yeah, I, I do see, I mean, again, just being completely equal, you, you do see some really bad female reenactors, as you do with, with guys. And I think I would also just say to, to women out there that you, you've still got to do the research just as a guy does. But yeah, I think we've got a long way to go. And we've discussed um, previously about, uh, you know, how, how we need to improve the hobby for women in there. Um, but yeah, I absolutely think there's still some room for growth, but I think they are taken seriously. Um, and the last question on a, on a lighter note, is what type of aviators should I buy to complete my impression? <laughs> Someone's got it out for you. They really are. Yeah, yeah. Quite a good oh. one. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't got an answer for that one because, as you know, I, uh, I I repulse at the thought of aviators with an impression. They've there. got to be mirrored. And they've got to have the little bendy uh, bits of <laughs> the back. Yeah, you know, the wrapping A lesson, the yeah. The, the kind of ones you find outside, like a, a tourist shop um, or on Oxford Street yeah. in London. Something like that, pretty terrible ones. Great, but uh, but yeah, but that's that's the end of, of episode eighteen. There, hopefully, we provide a little bit of usage there. Uh, we will we will look to do this with the the British infantrymen in uh, in the ETO as well, because that does change a little bit more from from nineteen thirty nine up to nineteen forty five as well. Mm. So we will look to do that in uh, the next couple of episodes, and we are opening our doors to the wonderful world of the reenactors ramble guests. So if any of you folks out there would like to get involved and uh, and come and join Andy and I on the podcast and please do get in touch and we will look to arrange uh, a show with, with some various interesting folks very very soon fabulous well Great. that's and that that's that Andy any plans for this week oh, do you know what um, yes I'm actually going to start purchasing a few things of the uh, the Air Force nature 
So there's a few things I want to put. Which, which Air Force? The American. The I'm U.S. Gonna, Army Air Force. The U.S. Army Air Force. I've been rather keen about what you've been buying and being from that neck of the woods by Burton Wood. Mm, Burton Wood, yeah. I've. It's, I, I just wanted. I've always wanted to buy it, and I'm watching you pick up all this stuff, and I'm thinking, I'm fed up with this. I'm going to buy some. I, I just you know what? Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, I think you sometimes need to be reinvigorated in the hobby, and I've talked about this a lot. The US Army Air Force stuff is is really reinvigorated my passion on the US side of things, which was probably waning over the last couple of years. So really excited to to continue going with that and sort of build it into some of the sort of flight kit. I'm I'm looking for an A2 jacket at the moment. So I mean originals are just probably way outside the price range, but I want some recommendations from our listeners on uh the best reproduction A2 jackets that are out there because I'm really, really want one. I'm looking for one. Um, so please do get in touch if you have well, any recommendations there. Next year, 2021, if this whole business, uh, COVID business, disappears, we're going to have one of the best seasons, seasons ever. It's going to be an absolute yeah. blast. I'm dedicating every weekend to it. Very much looking forward to it. Just try and stop us. Great. Well, uh, well, Andy, we'll leave that there and have a wonderful evening and we will speak to all of our lovely listeners again soon. Yes, thank you very much, Richie, and uh, good night. No probs. Take care, guys.